Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today, I am joined by Dr. John Illiff, who's been on the podcast before for a very special episode of Sleep for Performance, which we are uh, trying to get out to you as soon as possible. So this is being recorded at approximately 4.30 on the 19th of March, which is my wedding anniversary, John. 15 years married. <laughs> Congratulations, Ian. Well, that's what they say. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my wife I said made that joke. Um, so yeah, 15 years today, um, and we're recording this uh, conversation with John. Uh, you may remember John, who was on the podcast previously. John is an emergency uh, physician consultant now, John. At the time, you were in your last year of your uh, register. What, what, is, what is it? Residency? How do you... What's, what's the uh, terminology? I'm sorry, registrar year. So it was registrar. my final year of um, being a registrar and now a uh, consultant in emergency medicine with the... Um, uh, with uh, WA Health, uh, based in Perth, and also in WA Country Health. Oh, excellent! So, congratulations, John, on attending that since the last time we spoke. Oh, but, John, you. you you are currently in what we call uh, the fourteen-day self-isolation slash quarantine slash self-imposed lockdown um, here in Perth, in Western Australia. Hence, why we're doing this over Zoom and not face to face. So, John, do you want to tell us about why you're in this self-isolation at the moment? Sure. Well, um, basically what's happened, Ian, is that um, um, I've unfortunately had to return to Australia fairly promptly given the, the current um, escalation of the, the global crisis that's going on at the moment. Um, I was actually due to get married um, back in Ireland um, tomorrow on the 20th of March. And as things were starting to become more apparent um, with the scale of the issue we were dealing with, as I'm sure people are aware, countries all over the world were starting to um, restrict people and their movements, but also social gatherings. And prior to me leaving the country, um, Ireland imposed a, um, a ban on large social gatherings of greater than 100 indoors and greater than 500 outdoors, I believe. It was 500 right doors. But um, it got to a point then when I got into Ireland that things were starting to escalate very quickly. And my fiance and I, we decided um, early last week, um, last week around, or earlier this week, sorry, about Sunday, that we would cancel the wedding because we had international guests coming from Australia, New Zealand, Switzerland, America. And we could not risk having them stuck in the country um, outside of their home, um, away from home. And we also needed to make provisions to get back. Now, unfortunately, my my fiance had not left by this stage. She was due to come a little bit after me. So we had a bit of a mad rush to get back to Australia with all my in-laws and my family. Um, I'm glad to say we're all back and all guests who had left have returned to their country of origin. Um, but now, as per the government recommendations, um, all of us are currently, we've returned to Australia under a 14 days mandatory quarantine, which, although is tricky, is definitely the right thing to do. And we're following to it very, very strictly, um, even possibly a little bit more strict where my fiance is actually living with friends at the moment and is out as um, I'm at home on my own at the moment. And the, the closest we have got to is within two meters of each other to hand something to each other. And that is it. Um, we are taking this very, very seriously. Yeah. So, John, how, how are you personally dealing with that um, isolation at the moment? Obviously, it's off the back of a, you know, a major kind of event you were going to have in your life, getting married and, you know, a great time of celebration. And sort of it's not probably the best time to go into self-imposed isolation slash quarantine. 
what how are you doing to maintain your sort of your spirits each day and, and keep upbeat about this situation and I, I would presume John as well as a physician you are probably slightly stressed that you're not being able to be out there and help people mm. at this time as well exactly and um, I think when it comes back to what am I doing in isolation at the moment, um, a lot of this is all really gearing towards sort of good mental health really at this point. And there's, there's so much documentation and experience of people who had to do similar. Two weeks is a very, very small period of time in the grand scheme of it. But for me, from a personal perspective, what I'm doing is um, sort of in, in the evening, I'll be setting a task for the next day and keeping to it very strictly in regards to um, an exercise regime. Um, I will then have leisure time between reading or puzzles and things like that. And then I've also got a, a variety of non-clinical work, which I'll be performing as well, um, which will get me ready for going back into work in 12 days when I anticipate to be getting back. And so, John, at the moment, are you liaising with any of your fellow workers in the hospitals? Um, around this and and if so what are what are what is the kind of the current the current thinking or the current um feeling amongst um you know emergency workers or care workers or hospital workers physicians nurses everybody at the moment well there's actually a, a lot of preparation is going into um getting ready for an expected deluge um in wa and there's a lot of contingency planning in regards to getting departments ready because this this is not like anything that we are going to have experienced in our lifetimes before. This is a, a droplet spread virus which runs huge risk. We run a huge risk as healthcare, healthcare workers trying to manage this safely and trying to help as many people as possible. Um, we have to make sure we try and isolate people as best as possible within the emergency department. We need to protect staff. And we need to ultimately make sure we get them the treatment they need. It is a very, very nervous time reading and hearing what's going on in places like Italy, which is a very, very good health service um, and a very, very wealthy area in the uh, Veneto uh, region and Lombardy. These are, are wealthy areas of Italy which are struggling to deal with the outbreak. And from what I can see today, there's um, unconfirmed figures of around 500 people have died in space of one day. The concern with that is that although things look relatively good in places like West Australia, where we are, where there's 38 cases as of this morning, is that we know, and this is a fact, we know cases are going to rise. As cases rise, people will get sicker over the progression of the illness. And our big concern is that if we get to a point where we have so many people all in one go who are exceptionally sick and require intubation and life support is whether we'll be able to provide that for people and that we have enough equipment, enough staff, enough resources to be able to do that. And this is why it is so important that we start socially isolating now to try and be able to deal with the, the known deluge we're going to face in a couple of weeks because we would be foolish to not look at what's happening in Italy and now in Spain as a result and not learn lessons from that. And I can already see good things that are happening in Australia, that there is a culture now of starting to socially distance where sporting events are being cancelled. This is the right call. And ultimately, if we deal with this right now, we will be able to get back to normal life in a quicker space of time.
The concern that I find is is that if it doesn't um, if it doesn't go the way that we want it to, and that we're going to expect more and more people to get sick, and there is a lot of hearsay going around um, in regards to information, um, and I'm certainly not going to claim to be an expert in this, and a lot of this is reading from different sources of my own that. A lot of these people um, who are getting sick, the majority are elderly. This is correct, but they are not exempt. I do know of cases um, in um, in Ireland where there are young people currently on life support, and some of them are healthcare workers. And this is what we as healthcare workers are very, very conscious of, and we are nervous of that we are at essentially the coalface of getting a very, very serious illness, mm. despite all the precautions that we can take, that we are facing into something that we've never had to before um, as a, a workforce. And we want to be prepared as best as possible. And when we see the community trying their very, very best as well, we get a lot of comfort from that, that if people are trying to help because they know that everybody needs to do their part for this. And there is no question, we're entering a stage now in the next few weeks, there is no room for complacency because we will have problems just like they're facing in the north of Italy at the moment if we do not conform to this and we don't all buy in immediately. Yeah. So, so John, um, this virus, there's been a lot of talk about where this virus has come, out, come from. There's obviously been a lot of conspiracy theories already lot of speculation and obviously we don't know having that conversation but can you give me an idea about maybe what the current thinking about where this virus may have been and how it originated and and also why did it spread so fast or how did it spread so fast so the looking through the data the thought is that the origin of this virus was from the Hubei province in China in a city of about 11 million people called Wuhan where there was a wet market um, of um, uh, wild animals were up for sale for uh, consumption. Yeah. It is believed, and again, I have nothing to confirm this, that it was um, from wild game or a wild animal being consumed by human that this virus um, has been then transmitted into humans for the first time. Now, the virus itself has been classified and has been given the name of COVID-19 which is, from the f is in the family of coronaviruses. Now, we are, have, we are known, we, we know coronaviruses and we have been exposed to them before, but this is a completely new type. The common cold, for example, is a coronavirus. Because this is new and this is something we have not seen before, this is all very much uncharted territory for us, <clears throat> excuse me, in regards to finding the characteristics of it. We know and we can see it is obviously highly contagious. And the, the WHO and the biostatisticians and epidemiologists are estimating that we can spread this, each person can spread this to further three or four people, possibly, if one was to be infected by this. And as we can imagine, if one person gets and spreads it to three or four people, and they call this the R number, the higher the number and the higher number of people you spread it to, the more contagious it is and more people it will spread. 
Now, the concern with us with this virus is that not only is it contagious, but it is all very serious and a very, very, um, um, a very, very powerful virus in that sense, and it causes people to get very unwell. We can see from the data that 80% will have a mild, manageable illness. The there will be a further 14% of patients will have a serious enough illness they would need to be admitted to hospital. And that could be for oxygen therapy, and that could be for a variety of different um, therapies in regards to ensuring that patients are comfortable and that get enough oxygen delivered to their lungs. The concern is, however, that there is 6% of people who require to go to intensive care and to be intubated and put on life support. And this is the, the number which is really, really scaring us as physicians because if things started to spread, and to give an example and thinking of numbers, we would say conservatively, we could face possibly 20,000 people in Australia getting this virus. It could be more. It could be less. I'm not sure. But when we think of 6% of those 20,000 people requiring to go to an intensive care bed, it's staggering. It's a staggering number, particularly when life is still going on and people are still having the same problems for which we use intensive care for. We still need intensive care for those who have emergency surgery for, for bowel problems. We still need that for people who have possibly really severe heart attacks. These people are not going to stop coming through the door because we're in a crisis, an emergency. And the big, the big challenge we're going to face is that we need to be able to cater for everyone as best as possible. So, so John, can I just ask you a question there? Because this has come up a couple of times in different conversations where people talk about having the availability of intensive care. And let's say that we use that number of 20,000 people and 6% of those, roughly about 1,200 people, have got to go into ICU. People are kind of going, well, we have the beds. We've got lots of hospitals. What's the big problem? So is this a case of... like? Are, are people naive to the fact about how many intensive care beds we have? And, you know, if so, how many, how, how much capacity do we have? Like, let's say in Western Australia, how much capacity do we have to deal with this for intensive care? Um, because people, I don't, know, I don't know if people realize or know, and I certainly don't know, is how much capacity do we have to deal with that percentage of it comes through? It is certainly not to that level. And yeah. you probably would be very aware now that there's a lot of, discussion around a phrase flatten the curve yeah what we do not want to do is we do not want to have all of these huge amount of this huge number of people all get sick at the same time because then we're going to have a huge proportion of people suddenly arrive into the hospital requiring these intensive care beds and hospital beds we want to be able to take this huge spike and flatten it out but flatten it over a greater period of time so that the health system can cope I'm going to speak in very generalized terms. And again, I do apologize. I can't give accurate information. I just, um, in my position, um, I can't speak for other hospitals. But I would say with between the three main hospitals based in, in Perth, in Western Australia, you're looking at anywhere from 40 to 26 beds in each hospital. Now, mm. 40 might be very, very high for some, but I'm not sure what some of the hospitals are, but this is what we're looking at each site. 
And this is what we think is that they are, they're fine bed numbers, but all those beds are usually full at any one time with other things going on and other patients. Mm. These are the factors we need to think of. The other factors we need to think of are the staff to man those beds. Yeah. The, we need, for every intensive care bed, there must be one nurse and they need um, accompanying doctors as well to help look after the other patients. The concern is if, pay, if staff start getting sick, there's nobody to help assist with those beds. It is exceptionally important we keep our workforce healthy to be able to manage. And if and now, as per our government departmental Department of Health guidelines, which is completely correct, if any member of staff starts to feel unwell or feels they're getting sick, they must take it off because we run the risk of spreading it. Mm. We cannot avoid close contact with patients. That's part of what we do. And if there's any thought that we might be getting sick, we need to stop. And we need to make sure we have a sustainable workforce that will be able to deal with the patients who are not well enough to be at home. So, John, how, how do we know how this is spread? I, I've heard it's touch. I heard it's from people are saying breath. It's from spit. It's from all skin to skin contact, like all different variations. Do we know how it's spread at the moment? Well, certainly all of those are, are true in a form. Basically, the way that the WHO have been saying that this is spread is by droplet. Now, droplet can be spread by anything. That can be spread by spit, by coughing, by sneezing. When we breathe, we have drop, tiny droplets of fluid which is held within the air and will land on surfaces. If those droplets are still on the surface and we touch them, and then we give we 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 touch our mouths, we touch our nose, our face, mm. then we are transmitting it towards ourselves. Um, that is the main vector of how it comes is through these little droplets, and that's we're coming in contact with the droplets on the surfaces. I don't know the most accurate and up to date information of how long they live on the surfaces, but this is why we want to make sure that we wash our hands exceptionally diligently because we know we're going to be coming up to these surfaces which perhaps we don't know someone has seized on and someone has possibly coughed on. So that if we have come in contact with the viruses, we're washing it off. Similarly, what's so important is that sneezing and cough hygiene have to be perfect. There's no room for any exceptions. Covering your mouth and nose with a tissue, your elbow, your hand, and then washing is the most important thing you can do when you're coughing and sneezing. And so is washing better than the hand sanitizer? Because people are freaking out about hand sanitizer at the moment. What's better, washing or hand sanitizer? I don't know any specific information to say what is better, but I know that I would rather have um, soap and water than anything else if I had nothing. I yeah. think sanitizer is much easier to use because it can sit in your pocket. But as far as I'm concerned, if I have ac- access to warm soapy water then that is perfectly fine by me okay um sanitizer is um, between so I'm not, I'm not sure the specific concentrations of ethanol um i don't know if there is any data to say which is better available but as far as i'm concerned and my colleagues are concerned we will our main mandate is to wash our hands with soap yeah. and water that is our our, our gold standard and certainly what I will try to do every time. But yes, I do understand that people want to get their hands on sanitizer and, and it is a, it's a, a fairly hard to come by commodity, 
but it doesn't mean then it's an excuse to go back to not using soap and yeah. hand washing. John, we've seen some really poor behavior at the moment in not here, in, not only here in Australia, but across the world in terms of people hoarding in supermarkets, panic buying, even though there is no effect on supply chains and logistics. What sort of behavior are people reporting that's going on at the moment in hospitals in terms of, you know, dealing with staff and dealing with each other, um, you know, management of supplies? What's happening there? Are we seeing the same panic behavior in hospitals or is it more controlled? Well, what I can say from a staff perspective is that there is a really good can-do attitude. Yeah. Staff, although are wary and know the th- uh, know what's coming and know the potential for what's coming on, nobody is shying away from it. Staff are not hiding away. They're not taking leave. People are putting their hands up to say they're ready to help. And that is exceptionally encouraging and why I take a great solace in um personally i want to get out of quarantine as soon as possible and then i'm heading straight to the office to make sure that i can get stuff done and ready for when i hit the floor people are getting prepared and this is really good and that's also in ireland where we obviously have a lot of ties talking to friends there friends in ireland are being retrained to be useful friends of mine who are surgeons are brushing up on um skills which will help them for these particular challenges that they're going to face because they won't, they might not be doing any surgery for the next few months. And that's encouraging from a staff perspective. What we have found is sometimes a bit harder to grasp is that sometimes we're, we're, we're being faced with difficulty with, um, with regards to our supplies. Um, there is, um, case cases, and I'm not going to say this. It would I would be an unfair thing to say. It's a sweeping generalization, mm. but visitors to hospital have been caught stealing equipment, um, from masks to hand sanitizers to gloves, and the very mm. a very real possibility we face is that if these supplies dwindle, they're not available for healthcare staff to utilize to protect themselves, and. We, we are worried about that, where we need to make sure that those supplies are maintained for hospital because we are going to face this. It's not a, it's not a question. It is happening, and we need to be protected so we don't bring it home to family, friends, and relatives um, and to be able to show that we can deal and help with people because otherwise we're putting ourselves at tremendous risk because we cannot socially isolate away from people. And... This is going to be from people who are known to have the virus and who are known um, who are known to be contagious, um, and that is quite concerning to a lot of staff. And it's not it's not a sweeping generalization; it's just happening in certain cases. And people are being taken to, to uh, are being charged with theft, yeah. but it's certainly behaviour which cannot continue for the health system to be sustainable. Wow, that's surprising, you know. We like you say, healthcare workers really need those supplies and if you know, on the front line. They're the people, like you say, put up their hands to do this work, not shying away from it. And if we can't support those, you know, it's it's pretty poor. What what's some of the positive things you're hearing on, John? Because we are hearing a lot of negative and it's easy to focus on the negative. Um, you know, we've all done that this week, including myself. Um, you know, I've I've got kind of 
pissed off with humanity this week, but there is some nice positive stories that are coming out. What's some of the positive things you're hearing, John? Well, I, I think the big positive things that we need to think about are where, where the viruses have originated and where they were first transmitted. There's a lot of good data to say things are becoming under control. In Wuhan and Hubei, there was no new cases transmitted by the community today. Mm. That is a huge step in the right direction from the, epi the original epicenter of the outbreak. So this shows it can be managed and it can get to a point where we get back to normal society. We also see where in Singapore and Hong Kong, the rates have been a lot slower than the rest of the world. And that will crescendo off and then we'll start to ease off as expected. And then it's interesting looking at the data out of Singapore and Japan because they, uh, pardon me, Singapore and Hong Kong, because they have had the best response out of anywhere else in the world, arguably. And the thought is, is that because these countries had um, experience with the SARS outbreak back in the early, to, um, in, um, the, the early 2000s, yeah. that they are used to this and they know and understand the significance of trying to put um, social distancing in place and exceptional infection control. Um, whereas the rest of the world has lagged behind somewhat. Um, so they are certainly good things to focus on is the fact that it can be managed um, and it is achievable that this is not doomsday. We also do know what is positive is that the, um, that the who have realized and know how serious this is and every country is buying into this now. There is, there's no country in the world which isn't aware of what's going on. There is no deniers of the severity of it. And as we look through history, um, there's, uh, as we look through history, um, humankind can actually get through anything once you get enough people buying into it. And what we've seen is that there is culture shift now. And what I do love to see here, even without governmental policy is that West Australians are practicing social distancing before it becomes policy. And these are encouraging times as well. Personally, I would argue that the schools should be closed um, because we do know that children aren't as badly affected as adults. But it's believed that the children are becoming vectors to bring the virus to the adults and getting them sick. So we already do know that families in Australia are not allowing children to see grandparents, are keep, yeah. starting to keep them from school. And these are very positive signs going forward um, that we're doing it before we're being made to do it by the governmental authorities. Yeah, I think you're right, John. I think a lot of people, including myself, like I'm working from home as much as possible. I've made a stance um, not to travel either internationally, um, and even that's been, that was just a few days before, and, and that it became sort of, not an option anyway. Mm. And even interstate-wise, I'm not, we're not doing any travel. And within the state, we are avoiding travel or minimizing it. And we have no travel booked for the next few months um, for that reason as well. And so we all in our office have decided to work from home, communicate via Zoom, phone call, whatever it might be. Mm. And where the need is not there to meet with clients face-to-face, um, -face, we won't do it. Now, we're going to continue to work away because I think it's really important that we all don't freak out we need to contribute to the economy we need to be positive and upbeat and we need to keep working away because there's not only the health and safety impacts of this and the cultural impact but then there's also the financial impacts which many people are hurting and i think yeah. if everybody sort of downs tools and 
puts their head down and says this is doomsday, I think then we're we're going to make it worse. So mm. I think uh, for me as a small business owner, I'm going to keep plugging away, doing the right thing. Absolutely. Head up and up B. And, and if we all can do that, we can all get through this in from a health perspective and a people perspective and a, an economic perspective and come out the other end really strong. So, yeah, I think... Um, we don't have to get that bad. And yeah. I, that was one, one of my questions off the back of that, John. The last pandemic we had in the world was the Spanish flu uh, nearly 100 years ago now, 1920, and about 100 million people died mm-hmm. in that. Are we going to see something similar to that? Are we, are we overreacting if we talk about similarities to Spanish flu? Or what's different with this one? Mm. Again, with the limitation of not being um, an epidemiologist or a public health physician, I personally would not think we are looking at anything to that extent because we have the ability to be able to deal with this better than what we did 100 years ago during the Spanish flu. And I mean, you could, it, it could be argued um, that actually the last pandemic to strike the world was actually HIV um, back in the 80s. And there were, a lot, there were a lot of things that were learned about the HIV pandemic and what has helped in regards to this we at that time did not know what hiv was we didn't even know what type of virus it was um we didn't even know if it was a virus for many many months i believe um and it took a while for that to gain traction in regards to finding out what the transmissible cause was and this is all part and parcel of learning about epidemiology and and public health and there are lessons to be learned through everything the difficulty with the spanish flu is that trying to coordinate health departments and world health departments are exceptionally difficult um, back or would have been exceptionally difficult back in 1918. We do know obviously travel would not be as free as it is now mm-hmm. and the, it, it could be argued well then the, surely this would be worse because we're traveling more freely. Yeah. I would actually disagree simply because the ability to get messages out in regards to social distancing, health generally throughout the world is much better than it was in 1918. We have a lot of different therapies. We know we know human physiology better now than we did back then, that this will not get to that sort of stage. People's immune systems are much better. And we know people are having survival rates you know, of greater than um, of greater than so 94%. The mortality rate at this point in certain circumstances is up to 6%. Yeah. Say what the most accurate general mortality rate is, I'm not sure. And similarly with the demographics of patients specifically, I'm not sure of that. But I don't anticipate it would be as big a global disaster as what it was back in 1918 when the Spanish flu um, yeah. was circulating. And I think there was a lot of discussion surrounding that, that when... Um, soldiers came back from the First World War, that there was a lot of spread that way. Is that, um, there was oh, yeah. a, a lot yeah. of movement. Now, again, the specifics, I, I can't exactly confirm that. But looking at numbers, we're looking at and dealing with, particularly when we are doing measures to combat this and we're seeing what's going on in China right now and in Singapore and Hong Kong, who are leading the way at this point. Yeah, I was in Singapore um, in the middle of February this year, and I, I have to admit, I was like, really, is it this bad? It was at the hotel, there were temperature checking people, there was distancing going on at that time. Um, you know, there wasn't, I don't know if there was a ban on social gatherings, but there was a little concert on down at the the um, Esplanade area. There wasn't very many people there, and people certainly were keeping a distance. And 
people were getting told to work from home back then, so that's a month ago. Uh, there wasn't that many people on the street, which is very unusual. We go to Singapore quite regularly. My wife and I like it um, for a break because it's only it's close enough here to Perth. And we were really surprised. We never seen anything like it. We were kind of gone. This is like a movie here. Like it's, yeah. you know, like contagion. It was really weird. But obviously, you know, credit where credit's due. Singapore were, like you say, ahead of the curve here and they've been able to minimize it. Um, you know, and again, like what you said, I'm not an epidemiologist or an infectious disease doctor or know that much about it, but I was kind of going, really, is it, is it that bad? Like, really? But obviously, Singapore were well ahead of it. And um, I, I think, John, you know, when we come out of this, I think there's going to be a lot of changes to public health policy, I think, going forward in many countries. Yeah, I think so. And and this is, um, there's going to be a lot of positive change going forward um, that we will know how to deal with this better. Um, I, mean, I would have a, a lot of opinions what I would do. It's not to say that that should be sort of put in set in stone in policy, but mm. when this blows over, which it will do, is that the um, the WHO and local health departments are going to have very very strict guidelines on what happens because modern society will not want this to happen again yeah. um, and particularly like you said I think it's very important that we realise and always take into account the economic effects that would have on small businesses big businesses as well um, there's already been one airline has gone into liquidation um, Flybe over in the UK. Um, I know Qantas today laid off two-thirds of its workforce in anticipation. These are all obviously concerning times for people, and we'd be, we'd be kidding ourselves if we said it's not in our minds somewhere. People need a livelihood. But out of adversity comes um, adjustment, and people adjust. Like what you're obviously doing as well is that you're looking to work from home, we try to keep business as usual as mess as possible. I do um, we're very um we're very closely tied to our our local businesses here um there's a, a cafe which is five doors down and we know that they are starting to plan doing home delivery services for people so they, they can still get some brunch and breakfast or where they cook and people come and pick it up at the door and they don't stay you know yeah, they're yeah. all very very good incentives which are being started because people know we need to change um, but we don't want that to risk a business unfolding because nobody wants that. Um, yeah. There's a, another um, company up the road which um, is a caterers. They are looking at doing home deliveries of um, food for people um, for dinners um, because they're obviously not going to be supplying weddings and functions pretty soon. But they're all looking to adjust and people will adjust accordingly. Um, and it's... It's, it's uncertain times we face, but people are starting to prepare for that. And um, again, not being, uh, not being an econo uh, economist, I, I don't know the, the significance and sort of the knock-on that's going to have in regards to growth in the economy. But it's certainly nice to see people trying. People are being industrious and working it out. And like you say, we're not focusing on the doom and gloom and expecting doomsday to arrive. We just have to adjust and and carry on. That's what we've got yeah. to do. I think you're. I think you're right, John. I think we need to. Um, there's been a bit of a shock into our economy and community this week. Mm. But I think now I feel a sense in the last twenty four to forty eight hours where people are like, right, it is what it is. You know, kind of uh, to use the old fighting analogy, bite down your mouthpiece and time to get up now. Because if we lie down and let this beat us. 
um, you know, we'll just give into it. So we have to, like you said, become industrious around this. We have to find new ways. And the other thing as well is, um, which I'm trying to do, is check in with people each day, a couple of my friends, give them a call, send them a text, make sure they're okay, ring them up, you know, tell them a joke, take the piss out of them, whatever it might be, get them laughing, keep spirits up. Mm. Because uh, a lot of people are, are getting a, are, can get very depressed with this at the moment uh, with all the negativity on social media and the news. And it's easy to become addicted to constantly scrolling through your phone or listening to the news. Absolutely. And, and I'm no exception. But So take regular breaks from those type of things, get some exercise in, make some phone calls, make sure that your friends are doing okay and we come out the other end of this. Um, so... I'm viewing this as an opportunity to connect more closely with my friends hmm. and businesses as well. And I'm ringing some other businesses that I have like links with small businesses and seeing if I can have them or, you know, how can we all keep this moving? Because I don't want to stop the work that I have flowing off my business into my service providers. So hmm. how can we work together and all help each other? Yeah, so. and I think that's very important is, um, is the mental health aspect of it. The, um, the WHO have released a document uh, last week about surrounding people's mental health given this concern and because the world is so connected now there's no avoiding news you can't avoid yeah. news like this and ev it's a talking point on everyone's mind and a concern point in everyone's mind you're you're dead right that it is so important to check in with with colleagues i've in the space of the last few weeks i've i have talked to colleagues who've called in tears who are just in in meltdown because of what's to be expected um and that's going to happen and we're all going to face that and face challenges but we've got to be there for each other and um I, the uh, the analogy i keep using at this point in time where we face it this this is probably the similar similar feeling to what world war one and two were like uh, a question of uncertainty um a feeling of unnerving and and not anticipation, that's not the, the right word, but unnerving anxiety of what potential the future holds. But what kept everybody together was the sense of community spirit. Um, and you look at all the wartime posters, and I know some people call them propaganda posters, but they were not propaganda. They were community support posters. They were there to help people and help them galvanize for the greater good. You know, they wanted to save food, buy sensibly, conserve food. They wanted to make sure that you didn't, um, inappropriate chat could cost lives. And that's the same with us is that we could, by talking loosely about this with incorrect information, that we can risk harming people by giving out the wrong suggestions. And that's one thing I'm very conscious of while we chat. I'm not, I do not want to give wrong information. But yeah. this is all very applicable to us today. But also in regards to galvanizing and looking after each other is it's so important. And this could be our generation's um, equivalent of a world war. And we should be thankful that we know how to we know how to ride this out. Back in 1944, um, you know, when the guys were heading off to the beaches in Normandy, they didn't know whether they were going to come home. They didn't know how they were going to ride it out. And that's where we stand a huge advantage. Um, I did see somebody uh, posting on social media recently saying, um, back, in, back in the 1940s, you were asked to call arms for your country. Now you're being asked to sit on your ass. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. And it is, it is a fairly... Um, it's a fairly polar opposite, but at the end of the day, it's uh, it's something we can manage, and just being there for each other is going to be so important. 
I think it's interesting, John, because um, to your point, a friend of mine today who I was talking to, her, she, her grandmother is 100 years old and she still gets around, goes to the shops and so on here in Perth. And she went to the shop the other day uh, between 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning, which is great that supermarkets are doing that to allow elderly people, disabled or people with challenges to go shopping. Mm-hmm. But people are buying, some older people are buying for the rest of their family, their extended family. Uh, so they're kind of being used to do to shop for the rest, which is um, sucking up resources. But this lady said that she's seeing worse behavior now than during the war. That during the war, people were more community minded. Really. So I think, yeah, I think what, which is really interesting from a lady uh, who's a hundred years old, you know. And for me, I, I would listen to what that lady's saying. She's been around a while. She knows a thing or two, regardless of, you know, our education or experience. I'd be listening to her. But I think whilst this virus is asking us to be socially distant, we can still be socially minded. Absolutely. And we have all the technology now to do it. We have no excuse. You know, people are very quick to get on Twitter, quick to get on Facebook, be offended, be, be just as quick now to get on and be supportive. Yeah, I, I, you know? it, is, it is so important to be supportive, and I, I completely agree. And, you know, we, we've, we've all seen that behavior in the supermarkets, and the logic, it doesn't, it doesn't sit right with me. We have no supply issues. Exactly. You know, there's, there's none whatsoever, and yeah. all we are is inconveniencing our, uh, the rest of society by doing this sort of um, action. I mean, what, what's a real shame is that my, my partner, um, was in the shops and had a few supplies and someone made a comment on her, um, on the amount of shopping she had. And she said, well, I've actually just got to buy for seven people going into quarantine and told them the explanation of us losing our wedding. And, you know, this, as she was shoo-shooed out of the, um, by this, this person in the queue and thought she was lying. He's like, well, no, I'm just telling you the situation of what we're dealing with here. And, I think the unfortunate thing is that we do know that crisis can bring out the worst in society. We know people are fighting, and I think that's from scare. You know, people are, are people are being scared. They're afraid, and yeah. they are afraid. But it, this also does bring out the best in the community. Um, I do know that there has been um, an inundation of uh, of people looking to help. Um, healthcare workers and saying what they, can they do while people are at work? Can they look after their kids? Can they walk their dog? Um, people are having a lot of offers. I mean, I've had so many good friends call me up to say, "How am I doing? How my wife? How's my wife doing? Um, is there anything we can do to help? Can we pick you up?" It does bring the best of humanity out as well, but it is very frustrating when you hear that perhaps people are maybe abusing the the, the privileges that have been given upon them in regards to getting, you know, designated shopping times. And that, that's the part I've, first I've heard of that myself, but in time, this, it won't be the thing that defeats us. It certainly won't be the thing that defeats us. And I, I suspect that as things start to go back to normal, which they will do, is that people will look at themselves and ask what they did. Um, what was their behavior like? Was that exemplary? And we all have a moral obligation to follow and do what the right thing is. Food is always going to be there. And I think the ironic thing is everybody's looking for long life things. All the f- beautiful fresh fruit and vegetables are all still there. They're all there. Everybody's buying bottled water. We have 
possibly one of the cleanest water supplies in the world. It comes straight out of the tap, you know? <laughs> you know there's, there's not logical thinking here. Um, my grandparents never had toilet paper when they were growing up. You know, these are, these are things we need to think about of what's really important, you know? Yeah. So, John, on that point, uh, just coming towards the end, um, you know, now that people are in isolation like yourself or self-imposed quarantine, whatever it might be, or even people like myself, what can we, what can we do, do you think, to um, ensure that we stay healthy? So can we still exercise? What can we do for our mental health? Um, what's some of the things that you would recommend that people might, might avail of now at this time? Well, well, what I'm doing at the moment is every night I'm putting a, 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 um, a schedule together for the following day um, yeah. just to make sure I have something set that I know what I'm doing the next day. Um, so, I mean, after I, we finish this, I'm going to go and my, uh, I, um, I'm going to have some dinner. Um, I'm going to chat to my wife again because she's obviously, um, sort of in a separate house. So have a chat. I'm calling my sister who's based in England and she's also in isolation. She's a healthcare professional and has had to go into isolation. So I'll be speaking to her. Um, and I think that's important to have a plan for your day of what you're going to do. Have an hour to read, have an hour to do a jigsaw, have an hour to cruise the news if you really need to and try and find something to pr productive to do. Um, this is a great time that we could educate ourselves. There are educational courses we can do online and ultimately as well, we can work. You know, a lot of people can't work when they're at home, but there's a yeah. portion of us who can and that we can look at doing those things as well. And there's all, but it's, it's planning ahead, I think is useful. But like you say, it's so important is to plan exercise. And again, thankfully, we live in an age where we have access to so many online tools to exercise. I see those Pilates instructors looking at doing live streaming of their Pilates classes so that people can dial in and join um, for a small fee. That, that's fantastic that people can start doing that and look at that. There's so many different apps you can buy to do stuff at home um, and exercise. The, they're all, there are possibilities. It's just being able to have the self-motivation to work around it. Um, I mean, from a health perspective, I mean, what I'm focusing on doing is eating healthily. I want to make sure I drink enough water um, and um, have a balanced diet. That's, I think, the most important thing in this um, in this part of this um, time of limitation. I find um, is the best thing I can do: eating fruit and vegetables, um, having proper dinner, rather than going down to comfort foods and bars of chocolate all day long. That's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and if I can, um, and I'm, I'm lucky that I do have a bit of space in a little garden, getting out in the sunshine, you know, just being out and taking in some sunshine because otherwise it can be fairly uh, restricting being indoors all day long. That's not the answer either, is trying yeah. to get a little bit of sunlight and just to get a bit of normality. Yeah, I think they're, they're great things, John. I think, and on the back of that, you know, for people in this situation, exposure to sunlight, even if you don't have a yard, open up your windows all day. Don't just sit in there in the dark because we know from a sleep perspective, of which obviously this podcast is about, that, you know, the best, um, you know, the best way to synchronize our circadian rhythms and keep our sleep-wake cycles in check is through natural light. And I think to the, to the reverse of, of your point about having a plan every day, is having a routine around your sleep as well, going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time. Don't just get out of control and, and stay in bed all day or start sleeping during the day. Have that routine because we know that if you want to have a good immune system, that sleep is vital for this. It's a great free recovery tool that we can have. And people have heard me bang on about this, but this is where we do bang on about these type of things because it will help you 
protect and safeguard your health. So if you do come in contact with this virus and you do get hit with it, well then, you know, having a, going into it in optimal health is surely going to be a great way to try and beat this and come out the other end. So I think uh, all these things that we're talking about are all going to be helpful in, in making, making sure that we all get through it individually as well. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If there's people like myself who are not under any isolation, but I'm trying to maintain social distancing, do you think I can still go for a run once I'm not running on top of people? Can I still go for a run around the park? Can I still go for a walk? Um, can, we, can we still do these type of things within the confines of social distancing? Yes, I would say absolutely. If you're under strict isolation, which I find myself in at the moment, um, that's not specifically possible. But when we're social distancing, then yes, is being being sensible you, know, you absolutely go for a run go and get out of the house that is important but what we don't want people doing is going off possibly into the gym and being on top of one another sharing equipment is getting outside yeah. that's the things we want to do um not shaking hands um and that's very hard in culture i find it very difficult myself when we're not going to shake hands anymore we're going to be very sensible with this cough etiquette is so important in regards to the way that we um, proceed in the future now covering your mouth and nose ensuring that you wash your hands really diligently and surfaces that you may have sneezed or coughed on making sure it gets washed down as well um, these are all it it stands to reduce the chance of of getting infected but it it's certainly we oh, excuse me. We certainly still run the risk of getting this, regardless. And I, I have a friend who has caught it. Okay, um, I won't say specifically geographically whether that's Ireland, England, Australia, or America. Um, but I have a friend who's caught it, and there is no reason to believe why they shouldn't have caught it, because they were very, very diligent in their um, in their use of. Um, um, of um, protective equipment but they have caught it and it's just an, um, a piece of really bad luck that they have this illness now but what we can do is reduce our risk by being diligent as possible yeah so john before you go if people are bored and want to watch a tv show or a movie what are you recommending at the moment <laughs> Uh, what would I recommend? Um, I don't know. I, uh, I would say stay away from that. We don't want anybody getting more and more um, upset or um, doomsday thinking. Uh, I'm a big Big Bang Theory uh, uh, affectionate. That'd be probably my my crux now. Um, and um, I, I actually, when I was on the flight over, I saw an interesting series which I might download. Shortly is a thing called His Dark Materials. Um, which oh, yes. On yeah, HBO. Yeah. So, yeah, that might be my next uh, venture, I think. So, Big Bang Theory and His Dark Materials. Yeah. Very good. All right, John. Listen, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Um, we wish you all the best um, during your uh, isolation period. And uh, wish you all the best as well going back to help other healthcare professionals in tackling this. And from behalf of myself and everybody else, that has said it to me i think you guys are doing a great job and uh, we're really you know i'm certainly proud and um thankful for everybody's efforts in this as well so the least we can do is do some of the things that we discussed in this podcast today like we said about social distancing good hygiene keep our economy going and come out to the end with a with a sense of dignity of this as well so yeah thanks very much john no problem absolute pleasure ian and um thanks very much for having me on cheers <laughs>